What's happening, everybody? Welcome back to possibly our biggest episode here on the Carbide Podcast. For you newcomers, my name is Spencer Delabriere. I like snowmobile racing, and I like stories. If you two share those interests, then you're in the right spot. There's not a snowmobile racer alive that doesn't know who our guest is on today's episode. He burst onto the pro scene in 2000, winning Winter X Games at the age of 15, and in many ways never looked back. 18 years later, when he finally calls it quits in the snow world, he leaves with the most stacked trophy case in the sport's history, numerous records that will never be broken, and the utmost respect of his competitors and the entire industry. We may never see talent like this in the sport ever again, so let's relive it one last time with the man himself, Tucker Hibbert. Welcome back, everybody, to the Carbide Podcast. Appreciate you guys tuning in, as always. On the line tonight, the man you've all been waiting for, 10-time X Games gold medalist, two-time FIM Snowcross world champion, all-time leader in national snowcross wins at 138, 11-time snowcross champion and snowmobile hall of famer, Mr. Tucker Hibbert. How are we doing, T-Train? Hey, how's it going? I'm doing, uh, doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on. For sure, for sure. Super stoked. And uh, yeah, like I said, a lot of people have been asking. They've been begging for this episode, so it's going to be fun to, to cover some topics and go over your career tonight. Sounds good. So we all know your dad, a legendary racer, and obviously played a huge role in, in snowmobile development as well for Articat. But for you growing up, did you immediately get attached to snowmobiling or did it kind of take some time to grow on you? Uh, I was pretty much hooked on to anything with an engine right right away. Like uh, I had a little Suzuki three-wheeler that I rode when I was uh, just under two years old. I started riding that thing. And um, yeah, it seems like I just instantly was was hooked on things with motors and things that went fast and uh, just enjoyed having fun. And, I, and I, for sure, that was to do with my dad. He he was into the same stuff like riding dirt bikes and four wheelers and snowmobiles and everything. So being born into that situation, um, yeah, just was supernatural. I just kind of got hooked on it and, and didn't really want to do anything else. I was going to ask, and did you ever play any other like traditional stick and ball or team sports or anything growing up? Or was it really just anything with a motor? I did try to play baseball. I think, for like part of a baseball season, it did not go mm -hmm. well at all. Not, not coordinated. <laughs> not, um, I don't do good with sitting still. Uh, not that you sit still in baseball by any means, but for me, like, um, I don't know. It just, it, it wasn't for me for sure. And I, I was definitely no good at it. So uh, it was pretty, pretty short lived. Oh man. Oh man. What came first then? Was it the passion for, for snowmobiling or, or motocross? Because that obviously would become a big part of your life as well. It was really both at the same time. Like I, mm -hmm. I didn't really do one without the other ever. It was always uh, snowmobiles in the wintertime and dirt bikes in the summertime. And that's just, just the way it went. Like I loved both, you know, equally and just wanted to always be out riding no matter which one it was. So I would say it just kind of went hand in hand for me my whole life. 
I've always been curious about this and maybe somebody's asked you, but what's the significance of number 68? Like where did it actually come from? Uh, it's nothing too exciting really. Like I was racing district 23 motocross, you know, since I was really young and, and, um, there was one year that they kind of changed the way the numbering system worked for, for the Minnesota district, uh, motocross races. And you were assigned a number based on your AMA number, which was like a, like a 10 digit number that you were assigned on your little AMA card when you would register for races. And mm -hmm. if you didn't have some other number that was assigned to you for some other reason, you, you just went with the last two or three, uh, numbers on your AMA card. Mine, my last three were 685. So, uh, <laughs> for, for motocross one year, I was number 685 because that's just how it went. So I ended up 685 for snowcross as well. Just kind of rolled with that. And then when it was time to have a two digit number, I just dropped the five hmm. pretty boring. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Cause it's like, I can't imagine being any other number, but yeah, really nothing, nothing that significant about it. Well, that's what I was going to say, you know, some guys, they have a, a deep tie to their number and it's like their birthday or it's like their parents number or something. But for you, yeah, it's just a, just a freak thing. That's funny. And actually I was, I was number 168 for like one race. I think I raced in Sault Ste. Marie as a, as a sport, the only sport race I ever did, um, before Duluth, it was like a pre Duluth race. And I, mm -hmm. I did the race and I was number 168. I can't remember how that came about, but I was, I was 168. And then for the remainder, remainder of the season, like starting the next weekend at Duluth, I, I bumped up to the semi-pro class, but. Um, there was another guy, Brian Van Lent from Canada that was already number 168 in the semi-pro mm -hmm. class. So I had to switch, uh, I had to switch to 685, which was already my, my motocross number. So yeah, that was kind of funny, but he was, uh, he was kind of an intimidating guy. And I remember him telling me like, <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to get a new number. And I, you know, I, just, <laughs> I was just like a, you know, 14 year old kid or something. And yeah, he was, he was kind of a mean guy. So. I switched my number real quick. <laughs> oh yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. So I'm curious cause you know, we obviously know a lot about your history once the whole family moved to Minnesota, but you know, a, lot, a, a chunk of your childhood was, was spent in Idaho as well. So, you know, what was racing like growing up? I know it was a short stint, but racing in Idaho and, and what was that scene like? Uh, yeah, for me, I was super young, so I honestly don't, uh, I didn't race very much at all in Idaho. I did mm -hmm. one motocross race. My very first motocross race was uh, in Boise, Idaho. Mm -hmm. And I did a handful of like kitty cat uh, races, like pretty pretty low key um, local kitty cat race kind of things. And I think once, once on a snow scoot, but never anything on a full size sled uh, until we moved to Minnesota. So yeah, pretty much didn't, you know, didn't do much racing at all in Idaho. I do remember a little bit going to the races with my dad when he was mm -hmm. racing in Idaho when I was younger, but uh, pretty vague memories of that. But um, the racing was was pretty awesome. I know my dad um, really enjoyed his time racing there. They had a, a lot of cool, um, you know, like team cross country style races that him and his brother mm -hmm. Rex did together and a couple of their friends, they kind of all went to the races together. And, um, I know he talks, he talks about those days being some of his best memories racing and the most fun, uh, race courses. And so, yeah, it was, it was probably pretty cool. I just didn't get to experience it. Mm -hmm. 
So how old were you then when the whole family moved out to Minnesota? Um, I was in first grade when we moved to Minnesota. So probably like eight or nine years old, something like that. Um, we actually, we actually started, uh, first living in Minnesota, just in the winter time. My dad, mm-hmm. my dad and his family, um, were all farmers, potato farmers and, uh, farmers in Idaho. So I grew up, you know, just on the family farm with my cousins and my, my family there. And my dad would farm in the summer and race, uh, snowmobiles in the winter. And when he got to a point where he wanted to start traveling and racing more and, and be more serious, we started moving to Minnesota in the wintertime. And uh, my dad would do the snowmobile racing uh, in Minnesota. And as soon as the season ended, we would move back to Idaho and spend the summer farming. So it was kind of a back and forth situation for about five years, uh, which was, mm. you know, I was pretty young, but uh, it was a pretty cool time for me. Uh, I think a little bit stressful for my parents with mm-hmm. with four kids and moving moving all the way across the country two times a year and changing oh, schools yeah. changing schools and figuring out life. You know, it's pretty crazy. Along with my dad racing uh, mm-hmm. you know, at the highest level, so it was. I would ima- I would imagine it was a pretty stressful time, but also uh, pretty cool, uh, and I enjoyed it a lot. And then in uh, so that was like 1990 to 1995. Uh, okay. that's, that's the years that we kind of moved back and forth. Uh, and then in 1995, we moved to Minnesota and, and never went back to Idaho, moved full time. So that's when I was in first grade. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. We've heard that story before, uh, an Idaho potato farmer that becomes a, a snow cross legend. Yeah. yeah. So sorry. I, I said first grade, it was first grade through fifth grade. Fifth grade is when I moved to Minnesota full time. So it was like, first through fifth grade where the years we were going back and forth. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. There was, there was a number of guys that, um, that came from the Western racing that, that moved to Minnesota and got, uh, got into the kind of the Midwest scene. So it was, it was a pretty cool time. And again, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't racing at that time. I was just kind of along for the ride and, and, uh, enjoying that. But yeah, it was a cool time for sure. So, you know, it becomes a bigger part later in your career and we'll touch on it when we get there, but obviously chasing the, the moto dream, it, it's something that obviously means a lot to you, the sport of motocross. And in a lot of ways, that was probably your, your biggest love in the, in the world in a lot of ways. So when you first got to Minnesota and you were probably still racing snow, but racing moto, what was your amateur moto career like? Cause we don't hear a lot about it. Yeah, I, I raced, you know, the, my first ever race in, in Idaho, and then my second race would have been in Minnesota. And when we, when we moved in 95, I think it was, when we moved full-time to Minnesota, that's when we started, you know, living in Minnesota in the summer and doing a few motocross races that were close to home and uh, kind of learned about the District 23 motocross series and, and kind of got hooked on that. So the first couple of years, we would just do a handful of races that were closest to us living in thief river falls almost Mm -hmm. all of the races actually all of the races were south of us but most of them were a long way south and Mm -hmm. um so we didn't we didn't do a whole lot of races we did mostly just you know two or three of the tracks that were closest to us and and um just kind of worked into it and it was super cool because my dad my dad used to race motocross when he was younger uh but then didn't race for many years and when we moved to minnesota and i started racing district 23 and, and get more into dirt bikes. My dad also got back into it. He got a dirt oh, bike nice. again. And so we were racing all those races together on dirt bikes. So 
I was on an 85 or an 80 back then Suzuki and my dad was on like a RM250 in the, in the vet class. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a good time. Like just super fun going to the races, uh, really low key, obviously just getting started. So you're figuring everything out and, uh, everything was new, like a, a new, a new state that I had never been to in the summertime. Mm -hmm. So you're just kind of figuring everything out. And, uh, I really got hooked on motocross and had a lot of fun. Uh, and at that time, that's, that's pretty much when our relationship with the Eberts got started too, because we would, um, we would race a lot of Brainerd, uh, fairground races on Friday nights. Okay. And we would go down and do do those Friday night races and stay with the Eberts for the weekend and then try to do a District 23 race on a Sunday. So that was uh, that was a, a lot of fun, a lot of racing back then. Even uh, even to this day, do you got a do you got a favorite uh, Minnesota Moto Track? Um, well, Millville for me is probably the my favorite track in the state. Like it's uh, mm -hmm. you know it's just super cool with the hills and and. The, <clears throat> excuse me they prepped the track really well and yeah it was just super fun really intimidating for me the first few times i went there oh being, yeah being from uh northwest minnesota where there's no hills whatsoever <laughs> um it was a little intimidating but like i think my first moto race in in minnesota would have been at staples um okay and that was pretty much our closest track um so i pretty much grew up racing like staples and deer river um little falls so just the closer tracks to us mm -hmm. and then eventually started kind of migrating further south and, and doing some of the other races. And after a couple of years, we, you know, just, just like racing, you just get hooked into it and keep progressing. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to go to more races farther away, new tracks. And I progressed pretty, pretty quickly. And um, so I was always looking for a new challenge and, and started, you know, basically just started racing the whole, the whole season, all summer racing district 23 races on the, on the Sundays and uh, Brainerd Friday nights um, at the fairgrounds and all the, as many races as we could get in all the fair races uh, midsummer. So it was a busy schedule for sure. Did you ever uh, make a run for Loretta's? Yeah, I did Loretta's one year, I think 97. Okay. 97 or 98. I can't remember which year exactly, but the last year I rode a, an 80, I um, think I won I won my age divisions in district 23 one year and then decided we should try to go for uh, some of the amateur national stuff. So we did a qualifier for Loretta's in Kentucky. My dad and I drove down and did that and I qualified there. Uh, and then the whole family loaded up in the motorhome and went to Loretta's uh, just that one time. I didn't do very well. I think I ended up 16th or 17th overall. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't super, super good, but, um, it was an eye-opening experience for sure. It was, that was my, you know, my first time at a, a big race and it was pretty cool. I had a good time. Awesome. Awesome. So kind of transitioning a little bit into some snow stuff because, you know, through all these years of the, the amateur moto career and, and it developing and the skill set getting there, I'm sure there was a, there was a snow cross career brewing in the wintertime. So kind of what was your, you know, on the same note, what was the amateur snow cross career like? Because we never hear about that it basically all seems to start at that x games qualifier yeah i mean it it didn't start terribly you know long before that i mean it wasn't like i wasn't racing snowcross the whole time i was racing moto because i i wasn't old enough um all mm -hmm. the the snowcross series uh age classes i wasn't old enough for so i actually raced uh in west yellowstone 
um, in 96, I believe it was. I might get these years mixed up, but um, I was able to race a juniors class in West Yellowstone. Um, and so I did that two different years uh, before I was actually old enough to race in uh, what would have been the uh, ISOC or WSA. I can't remember what it was at that time, but there wasn't an age, age class for me, but I could go to West Yellowstone and race snowcross. So I did that mm-hmm. a couple times, rode my dad's sled. So it was a, you know, a full size sled, no, no throttle blocks or restrictors or anything. And that was like the coolest thing ever. Like I loved, loved racing at West Yellowstone. The track was rough. It was always warm, super cool. Got to ride my dad's sled. Like mm-hmm. it was super fun. So I did that. Uh, but then I also raced one season of ice ovals in Minnesota again, before I was old enough to race snowcross. I signed up uh, for a season of, I think it was called Casey pro uh, ice oval racing and we did that on 340 Pumas, so fan cool. Oh, nice! Single carb 340s, like the slowest snowmobile in history. So, <laughs> um, it was fun. I mean, I love racing, so it didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, it was the competition, and and I did learn a lot. Um, obviously, I I preferred snowcross and wanted to be hitting jumps and and doing that stuff. But it, I had a blast racing ice ovals. And, we did it one one whole season. My dad was racing um, at that time. Obviously, he was he was full bore in his racing. So, mm-hmm. um, a few most of the races were kind of on the same weekends in the same locations that my dad was racing. So it kind of worked out. But there was a few that were separate from that. So um, I traveled a few times with um, with the Espeseths, Brian and Mary Espeseth, and their sons mm-hmm. uh, Jason and I actually were racing against each other um that whole season we just kind of battled it out the whole the whole season long and uh jason won the won the title that year by one point i think it was so it was super super close down to the wire Mm -hmm. a lot of fun that's awesome that's awesome and yeah i remember hearing too like i would imagine this is kind of similar era where you're starting to get a lot more help from the everts like i know the the relationship was already there but i know i know russ played a a major part in, in getting you to the races and things like that yeah, for sure. And that came, uh, came like super heavy the first year that I was able to race, uh, snowcross in Minnesota. I finally was old enough. And, uh, my dad again was racing full time on, on his own program. So he didn't really have time to, um, to take me to the races or really work on my sleds or help me. I mean, he was just, you know, at, at the peak of his career racing, uh, for himself. So, um, my dad, my dad got a hold of Russ and somehow they worked out a, a deal that um, Russ and Joni would take me racing and, and help me learn how to race and learn how to work on the sleds and uh, actually take me to the races because I was, you know, 14, 15 years old. So no driver's license yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was super, super cool. It worked out awesome. Uh, the Ebert family is is so great and so many good memories racing back then. I mean, it was it was kind of a whirlwind because we raced you know, almost every weekend, just all over the place. And we did, um, we did the first year we did pretty much all the, the state Minnesota state series races that they had, uh, and then a few regionals, but we didn't do like any nationals or any, any big races. It was all just pretty, pretty small races, which was super cool. Cause you got a lot of track time and, mm-hmm. um, just racing all the time. And it was perfect for me to learn like a really good situation for me to learn and and improve and figure things out and it was uh it was a really cool way to 
to go about it. And Russ was so good at teaching and um, helping me to learn not only, you know, on the track racing, but on the mechanical side of it, working on the sled and understanding how we make it better and how to keep it running and just kind of learn the ins and out of the whole, the whole program, not just on the track. So it was cool. So through these couple of years of basically chasing, chasing any race you can find, whether it's regional or just local, you mentioned earlier, you pretty much had one race in the sport class before moving up, but through all these different years and all these different classes, like who are kind of your biggest competitors that you were up against on a regular basis? Yeah. I, I was trying to think back and remember like all the people, cause there was, there was so many fast guys back then. Um, I, I know on your, on your podcast with Dan, you were guys were talking about how stacked the field was back then mm-hmm. and how many ra- racers and people there were in all these heats and how hard it was to make the mains. And it, it, he's a hundred percent right. Um, it was, there was so many people and so many fast guys. It was, it was really challenging, um, which I think was a, a perfect scenario for, a racer to learn and get better because you were constantly getting challenged by somebody there. It wasn't like, you know, three or four guys, there's like tons of guys. So, um, but yeah, thinking back about my earliest years racing like regionals and, and then even nationals and semi-pro it was like, uh, Johnny mold was a guy that was always battling with, um, Matt Judnick, Nick Mm -hmm. Hutchinson, um, Jeez, who am I going to forget here? Josh Goebel. Mm, there's so many guys. It was, it was fun because I remember being, you know, kind of friends with some of those guys. It's like, you know, we were racing, but it was kind of the before things were too crazy and serious. So it was always mm-hmm. kind of fun to hang out in the pits and and uh, yeah, a lot of good memories with all those guys. But there was some some pretty good battling too. So moving into kind of the more of the, the pro side, um, basically starting with the, with the X Games qualifier in, in Duluth. And obviously now, you know, all these years later, in hindsight, of course he was going to race that race. Of course he was going to go to X Games, yada, yada, yada. But at the time, I'm sure it was kind of controversial. Like, what was the reasoning behind you guys basically attempting to qualify for X Games that first time? I honestly, I don't even remember like <laughs> anything about how, I don't remember talking about it. Like, Oh, we should race the X games. I I'm sure there was conversations about it or, you know, I, I honestly don't know, but basically what, um, you know, my, my whole career, like the whole, every time I raced, it was like, how, how do we get better? How do we get faster? Mm-hmm. How do we, you know, figure out, how to be challenged all the, you know, everything was about just getting better. And that's, that was my entire life. Racing was just figuring out how to get better. So our mentality was always do the hardest race you can do, be challenged, um, race with the fastest guys. So I guess I would assume that's, that was the thought process. Like I was pretty successful in semi-pro and, and riding well and had some good seasons. So we thought, yeah, just keep, keep racing the fastest guys. That's how you get better. So I'm sure that that was the thought. Do you remember at all going into that weekend? Like, of course you have the racers confidence. Like you have to think that you're the best guy on the line, but do you remember at all if you were nervous or thought you were in over your head or were you feeling pretty confident? Are you talking the qualifier or the actual X games? Just the qualifier for starters. Yeah. I, I don't remember. I I remember it was kind of chaos 
I vaguely remember like a first turn pile up or a bad something about a getting behind and I was not like I didn't win. I think I qualified mm-hmm. maybe at the last spot in. Yep. If I remember something <laughs> like that, it wasn't it it wasn't great. <laughs> I mean, I, yep. I, I obviously I qualified and was able to go, but it it wasn't like, oh yeah, this was everything went perfect. I remember it being kind of a kind of a mess. Um and the track <laughs> the track wasn't I'm, I think it was really dirty snow. It wasn't super yep. big. Um yeah, it'd be kind of fun to watch that race. I don't know if there's video of that or not, but it's on YouTube. Oh, uh, it is. Last yeah, last year ISOC put out a bunch of old WSA races. So that that okay. qualifier is on YouTube currently. Shoot, I should have watched it before the podcast and I'd know what I did. <laughs> I do I do remember that it wasn't like a super awesome race, but but we were able to qualify. That I do remember that, but yeah. Well that's that's what's kind of funny about it is like, you know, it wasn't it wasn't anything to write home about like you qualified, but that's, that's part like what makes it funny is just going into that, that X games weekend. Like it wasn't like, you know, yes, he's 15. He qualified. This is a big deal, but it wasn't like, yeah, he destroyed everybody in Duluth and he's a shoe in for this race. Like that, it was, it was not the narrative at all. For sure. And that, and that whole situation is, you know, that happens a lot because Duluth is the first race of the year. Um, usually you don't get the ride up, hardly at all before the you know before Duluth which is where this qualifier was the actual x games race I don't remember how long later but it was mid midway through the season or maybe towards the end of the the season so there was quite a bit of time and a lot of racing and testing and practicing that would have happened between that qualifier and the actual x Games. so it wasn't you know I, I don't remember at all but I'm assuming we probably didn't ride a whole lot before that so uh, just like everyone else that was out there. So it wasn't like it was just me, but um, it's, it's pretty common, was pretty common. It seems like people are able to ride a lot more now. And, and as the years went on, there was more practice tracks and people making snow. But back then, like it was, you were lucky to ride a handful of times before you, you went to Duluth. And there was a lot of people that didn't ride at all before Duluth. Like mm-hmm. lots and lots of people would be breaking in their sled on a jack stand in the pits, like, <laughs> the day of the race putting studs in in the parking lot like that's that's the way it went because they're just you know it was an early early race it was uh always thanksgiving weekend so most of the time there's hardly any snow if if any at all uh in the state or around the area to ride in so if you do get to ride it's maybe just up and down the road ditch and a couple inches of snow you know so it's like yeah that was always one of the most stressful things and frustrating things for me was um not being able to be able to go to the first race feeling like you're a hundred percent prepared. Uh, and that's just, that's just the way it always was. Sorry. I didn't prompt you for this one, but I'm curious if you can remember. So you race the qualifier and this is obviously you're, you're 15. So you can't race pro nationally cause you're too young, but were you continuing like after the qualifier, did you race semi pro up until X games or what did you, or were you just testing and getting ready? Like what's, what were you doing in that interim period? No, I raced the whole season as, as a semi-pro. So I okay. did that qualifier on, on the opening weekend at Duluth. And then I would have raced that weekend as a semi-pro as well, the whole weekend and then the entire season. So the only pro race I did that whole year was, was at X games, even after X games. I, I think we had at least a couple races after that. So I was still semi-pro, um, after the X games race. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, it, 
it wasn't like, you know, while we're just focusing on X games, it was, I was fully focused on uh, winning the semi-pro championships that year. So that was the main focus. And I think that was the first year that I raced all the nationals um, as a semi-pro. The year prior I had done maybe like three of the nationals. I did all the regionals and a handful of nationals. Um, and then the next year I did all the nationals. And I think that was the year I, I did the X games. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, it was, it was a, like, you know, I, I don't know if it was like planned out ahead of time, like, Hey, let's do it this way. Let's race district races and a couple regionals. Then the next year we'll race mostly regionals and a couple nationals. And then the next year we'll do all the nationals, but it definitely went that way. It was like a, a progression, uh, stepping stone, like into the national series. Um, and then racing the X games that year was kind of like a stepping stone into the next year when I would race a full season of professional for the first time. So it, it really, uh, it really worked well, I guess the way we did it. Cause I was able to learn so much, uh, as I progressed through each season. Well, that's kind of an interesting segue just because my next point was going to be like, you know, you touched on it earlier, basically every year you're trying to, you're trying to progress, whether it's just honing your own skills or racing against better competition and learning that way. Like the goal every year is to get better and better, but at 15 years old, you basically beat the fastest guys in the world. And granted, you're still young. You're still trying to figure out what you want to do with your life, just like anybody, any teenager would. But in a lot of ways, you kind of hit the pinnacle at such a young age. Like, if you can recall, just what was your what was your mentality like at that point? Were you kind of like, well, where do I go now? Or were you still just like, this is fun. Let's, let's grip it and rip it. Like, we're pro now. Yeah, I was mostly, you know, just having fun, enjoying riding and racing. Um, but definitely the first year when I, when I started racing professionally, it was like, okay, I, you know, this is, this is a, a, the next level, you know, and I gotta, I gotta do well. And it, it started to get more serious for sure. Um, the year that I won the X games, I think I won every semi pro race or close to every one of them. And so I wasn't, uh, you know, I, I didn't have a ton of competition, uh, in that season. I mean, I did, but I was able to, to kind of dominate. So it was like, things were going super good. And then obviously to win the X games, it was just like, Holy crap. I, I was like on cloud nine, just things were going perfect all the time. Um, but I, I was having a lot of fun and I was a kid and it wasn't like super serious. So, um, I think it was a kind of a slow transition into the being more serious and more pressure and obviously, uh, racing as a professional, you know, brought the, those pressures and things started to get more serious. And, um, but it was never, it for sure was never like, I never ever in my whole career felt pressure, uh, from anyone, sponsors, team, people, it was all pressure that I put on myself. Um, so that was, that was super cool. Like I'm fortunate that I never had, um, like a, a team manager or anyone in my program that was ever just like, Oh, you gotta, you gotta do it. You gotta do it. And really pushing you. And it was all just super natural, super relaxed. Um, and I was able to, to learn and, and, uh, grow kind of without too much pressure, which I think was really good. You know, through these years, it's basically, you can, you can see a career in snowcross racing on the horizon. You know, you're, you're still young, but you can see it did this kind of change your mentality on, on the moto dream at all, or was it still kind of two separate things and you're just kind of enjoying them 
both equally? The, it was both. They were both progressing at the exact same time. Like, um, yeah, they almost mirrored um, each other as far as like what I was doing and how I was choosing what races to do and what classes to race and moto and snow. It all kind of happened at the same time. So my my desire to do each of them stayed kind of equal you know there was never like a a huge moment where I decided like oh this is what I want to do or this is what I want to do um I if I had to say anything I would say that I had a little more little more pull towards motocross um Mm -hmm. I just seemed to I'd seem to enjoy that just a little bit more I don't know why um but that just seemed to always just kind of be there just kind of in the back of my mind a little bit more but um but yeah, it was just always moto in the summer, snow in the winter, and and it really they fed off each other, and they really helped me. One, each sport helped the other one tremendously for me. Well, kind of fast forwarding a little bit into into O three because this is where you know very famously you make the decision to step away from snow, and you know you've been battling Blair for a number of years. You've had, you're having your own success. Like we can, we can see the future. We can see what it's going to be. So you stepping away at the time, obviously just kind of rocked the snowmobile world, but kind of how difficult was that decision to step away from racing that time? Because it's, it's one thing to, to just race snow in the winter time and run outdoors in the summer, but to actually just completely give up snow and chase supercross. That's a, that's a big undertaking. Yeah, it was a, it was a kind of a big deal. I, I wasn't having a lot of fun that last year in snowcross. Like I, I remember a lot of frustrating races where I would get second by just a little bit for some reason or another. Um, I remember making quite a few mistakes and it was like, I don't know. It just wasn't, it wasn't as much fun and I wasn't as successful as I wanted to be. And it just, I just wasn't happy. Um, it was going good and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't super unhappy, but it was just kind of like frustrating. And, and I honestly don't remember what, what the big pull to go to race supercross was other than I loved motocross and and I loved supercross. I watched all the races and got all the magazines and, and uh, you know, obviously I knew what supercross was and I just felt like um, I felt like if I was going to progress at all, beyond where I was on the, on the motorcycle that I needed to race full time. I couldn't do half and half. Like, and I, mm-hmm. I really wanted to be successful at racing motocross and supercross. And I thought the only way that I'm going to get much better than where I, where I had gotten to at that point was to do it year round because that's what everyone that I'm racing against is doing. All the other guys that, that race professional motocross and supercross, they do it year round. That's all they do. They're not doing two different sports. So that was, Mm -hmm. you know, that was my reasoning. I just felt like in order to improve, I've got to do it. I got to do it more and not take, uh, take time off in the winter. What did your, what'd your moto and supercross program look like that first year? Cause you know, you're going from factory Articat, kind of the pinnacle on the snow side where you, support team were you were you box van in it like what was your what was your program like in moto it was um support teams like super kind of low level support teams that i rode um the first year and first couple of years kind of i shouldn't say super low level but like not you know definitely not the highest end teams but but definitely good teams and 
more than good enough teams for where I was at. So um, I was fortunate to get connected with the right people and find uh, find some support and get to the races, which is what I needed. I needed to be at the races, just like in snowcross. I needed to do all these races and keep learning and keep progressing. And and I was very uh, fortunate to find some some people and some teams that were uh, willing to give me that support and give me the give me the opportunity to learn and progress, which. You know, it, it didn't obviously didn't go super good right away. It was uh, kind of mm-hmm. up and down and uh, a little bit like starting in the, you know, in the, the sport class and working your way through like I, you know, it, it was a whole new whole new ball game racing Supercross and it was a little intimidating. I just hadn't hadn't done it a lot. So I spent a lot of time practicing and testing and getting ready. And um, and the first season didn't go super well. I only qualified for one main event in Daytona. Uh, which I was obviously happy when that happened, but I wanted to be in every main event and uh, and that didn't really start happening until the next season. So it took a year to to kind of figure it out and progress. So I know you raced East Coast uh, Supercross in the lights class. Were you, I remember reading at one point, like you were based out of Wyndham's house. Like, was that the whole program or were you living in Minnesota and traveling back and forth? Like, where were you, where were you based? Uh, the first, year i was in california my friend uh rob and i which uh, rob dolan was a huge part of my racing uh basically from day one i met him when I, we moved to minnesota and i went went to high school with him um he was a few years older than me which was cool because he was in the motocross and riding and and i was too and he had a driver's license and i didn't and um so him and i kind of just instantly connected and, and, uh, loved doing the same things. He raced snowmobiles too in the winter and dirt bikes in the summer and, uh, just had an instant friendship and connection. And so that's, you know, that's a big part of, uh, of my moto and snow career, uh, is having Rob, you know, right there with me that whole time. So, uh, so Rob and I raced together motocross like a ton, uh, through the years and him and I ended up moving that first year to California uh, together to do supercross. So he was my mechanic, uh, the first, the first year there. So we lived in California, raced supercross and motocross that season. And then, uh, and then let me think Wyndham's was a couple years later. Um, I don't remember the exact years, but yeah, it was a few years later. Um, I just met Kevin at the races and had some mutual friends and contacts and, uh, he was looking for somebody to, uh, train and ride with. He was just riding by himself all the time at home mm-hmm. at, at his tra- uh, practice track. So, and I was kind of like looking for something different. I didn't like living in California. Didn't, uh, didn't feel like that was the right fit for me and, and the right tracks. And so, yeah, it just kind of worked out that, um, that we connected and I moved to Mississippi and, and we rode and trained together through the winters there for, I think three years or something. I would live there in the winters and then back to Minnesota in the summer. Gotcha. Gotcha. Again, kind of going through the timeline, there's, there's a couple different teams, you know, motorsport outlet, Honda, motor world, Yamaha, handful of top 15s, top 10s and supercross. Like it's, it's all over the place between there and, and Canadian nationals. Like I would imagine through these couple years, just like on a calendar year level, you're just hitting every race you possibly can. Like you're just, you're just trying to get gate drops. It sounds like. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I had, a um, I think three or four seasons that I rode for teams that I did East coast supercross in the full outdoor season. 
Uh, and then I would hit a couple Canadian nationals in between that didn't conflict, but I, I did, um, yeah, I did, I think three seasons where I did the full, the full tour. And then, um, then I decided to kind of do it on my own a little bit. I wasn't super happy or didn't feel like I was going to be able to grow anymore riding for the teams that I was riding for. And I wasn't good enough to get on a better team basically. So I just, mm -hmm. I just decided, I think I can do better on my own. And I had a super good mechanic at that time. And so we kind of put our own program together and, and started racing East coast supercross and then kind of like a limited outdoor schedule uh, of some us nationals and some Canadian nationals um, to take on the full outdoor national, what the full year round schedule as an independent team was just too expensive and too, mm -hmm. uh, too much to handle for a small, a small crew. So we did supercross and we did, you know, basically just kind of handpicked the motocross races that made sense and the tracks that I liked. And, um, and we had a lot of success. Those are some of the best, uh, best results and best years that I had. So that was definitely the right decision for me. Uh, and some of the most enjoyable. And that was also the, at the same time that I was racing, uh, a handful of snowcross races also, uh, kind of like limited snowcross schedule. So it was a super fun time, like being able to do both sports, um, but not full time. So the stress and the pressure wasn't mm -hmm. there, but we were just having a lot of fun doing that. And, and it was, uh, yeah, it was a good time. I didn't prompt you on this one again, so I apologize, but it just came to me going through some of these results. Like you won, you won six motos in CMRC. Like you were, you were a legit guy in those Canadian rounds. Like, did you ever, did you ever just kind of consider like, Hey, I could be, I could be a Canadian champion. Like I could go up there and I could be, I could be legit. Like, did you ever consider going that route? Um, I did actually race one full season in Canada. Um, okay. Oh, seven. And I did not win the title. So I was kind of bummed mm -hmm. on that, but um, we had a few bad races and a couple of mechanical issues and it didn't work out. I can't even, I think I maybe got, I don't even know, fourth, maybe. I don't think I was third. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I didn't win the title, so that didn't work out. But um, but I did win a lot of races, mostly the other seasons when I would just do a handful of races. Um, mm. So it was super fun. Yeah, the obviously the competition in Canada is not quite as high as in the U.S. I was I was always fighting for wins up there, but in the U.S. I was always um, somewhere in the like twelfth to fifteenth place in the in the outdoors. So um, I enjoyed doing both. Obviously, it's fun when you can win motos and win races and be. Uh, battling for the win like that's it's more fun to be battling a guy for first than for 12th but um but my heart was really in in racing in the u.s and the challenge of that and i wanted to uh, achieve my goals there so i mostly focused on that but did do the one full season in canada um but yeah just didn't quite didn't quite get the title uh that year i was able to win the east-west shootout uh in walton mm -hmm. which was cool that was one of my favorite favorite races it was a good memory a lot of good times out there so you kind of mentioned during these years, you're kind of doing one-off snow cross races if the schedule doesn't conflict and you got enough time. But what was it kind of like just kind of floating back and forth? Like you're this you're this top 15, potentially top 10 guy in, in Supercross, and then you'll fly home, jump on a sled, and be the best in the world at something, and then go back to moto. Like what was that like just mentally, like confidence-wise? Uh, it was – it felt good. I mean – um, obviously to, to be able to still be successful on the snowmobile, 
um, and not be doing it full time was I was fortunate that I was able to do that. It was actually a super easy transition back to the snowmobile, like within a matter of a lap or two, I felt right at home and felt really good on the snowmobile. It was when I would come back to the motorcycle. Um, mm. it took, a, it took a few days to kind of, uh, feel like I was back up to speed. And, uh, so that was the more awkward transition, but getting on the snowmobile, uh, even if it was a month or two since I rode last, it just happened supernatural. Um, so that, that made it obviously a lot easier for me to be able to, to balance both sports and, and, uh, have success at it. Um, but it was fun. It was, you know, I felt like in those years when I was racing half kind of half season snowcross and then East coast supercross, like I learned so much about training and fitness and professionalism and, dedication like the the motocross and supercross world taught me so much about how to prepare for races and how to how to be successful uh and that when i transitioned back to snowcross it just was like it made it so much easier and and uh for me like you know a lot of people have asked me over the years like oh do you regret doing that and like it didn't really you didn't have the success in motocross and i'm like there's no way I would have ever had the amount of success in snowcross that I've had if I hadn't raced supercross and motocross to the level that I did. Like I learned that's, that is a hundred percent where I learned how to win and be successful. Uh, not that I couldn't have done it without it, but to me, that was like really gave me the edge. Well, take me through kind of the thought process and thought process of coming back into into snow full-time in in 2010 and kind of hanging up the boots on the on the full-time moto stuff yeah i can't really remember too much about that like the details of why or how it all came about i know that i had raced um you know a handful of seasons where i did kind of half and half and we were doing it the supercross and motocross program as an independent so just me and and um a few a few people it wasn't a full team effort so that got to be challenging like it's it's hard to do and uh expensive and um takes a lot of effort to to make that happen and i had had success but i hadn't had you know quite the success that i had hoped for um mm -hmm. and i'm assuming that was part of the reason to to focus back onto snowcross um but i honestly don't remember the exact you know, how it all ended up happening. I know Russ Ebert, I think that was the year Russ Ebert kind of stepped in as um, team manager for Arctic Cat. And he was, he was always a big supporter of everything I was doing, but I do remember talking to him a couple of times um, about Snowcross and kind of what was going on. And yeah, it was always hard. Like it was always hard leaving partway through the Snowcross season. I think at least one of those years, if not a few of them, like I would, have a pretty good points lead, uh, and then just, just leave, go race, go race supercross, which I enjoyed doing and I had a blast doing it, but it was always a little bit kind of hard. And I think there was actually one year where a couple of races got canceled or there was some double headers or something on the snowcross series. And I was actually able to come back and race Lake Geneva after supercross was done for me or on an off weekend or something and still wrap up one of the one of the championships, I think in the stock class. So it kind of worked out where I had a big enough lead and I missed a couple of races, but I was still able to, to do it. So I did do that and get one, one championship somewhere in the middle there, but yeah, it was, it was always hard to do. Like I, I wanted to win, but, um, 
but I had my goals in Supercross. So yeah. I would imagine too, and you can, you can throw this right back at me. You don't have to answer if you don't want, but I would imagine too, just from like a financial standpoint, like just trying to make a living where in moto I'm, you're probably paying to get to all these races, you're paying your entry fees, all this kind of stuff. And then you look at snow where you could potentially just be winning championships with your eyes closed. Like it's gotta be, it's gotta be a daunting prospect. Yeah. I'm sure that had a, had a part of it. I honestly don't, I don't remember like thinking that and that being the reason, but I'm sure, it, mm -hmm. I'm sure it was part of it. Um, I definitely, um, I definitely had learned enough from motocross and supercross to where I knew like, I knew that I was going to be more prepared to be successful mm -hmm. on the snowmobile. Like I, I felt like I was in a better place and that was even, that was, you know, already, already proved itself because the seasons that I didn't race the full seasons, I was riding the, you know, some of the best I'd ever ridden and, you know, mm -hmm. my fit, fitness was good. And I just felt like that's when I was realizing like, Holy crap, I'm learning so much and getting so much better because of motocross and supercross. Um, so I probably just felt more confident about it too. Like I can come back and, and be better than I've ever been. So kind of going back into the, the full, the full program in snow, you know, all these years, you've basically run your own program, even on these, these one-off races. Like it's, you're not racing out of the factory cat trailer. It's still your own program. When you make the decision to go back full time, was it, pretty turnkey like on your program as a whole or did you have to hire a bunch of people and bring in a new team and kind of what was that like um shoot i don't even really remember too much about that first season like how what we did exactly for the whole team but i know like you know through racing moto and kind of put my own program together i knew that that i liked that and i liked kind of being in mm -hmm. control of, of everything and being able to make decisions and do things that made the most sense for us. So it was for sure the way to go as far as structuring our team, just, um, just working with the people that we know we need to work with and keep it simple and do what needs to be done. Um, and this, the whole time, like we haven't really talked about my dad too much, but um, basically the season after the X games that I won, he, he kind of, that was the tail end of his career. And I think he raced, um, he raced one season. We raced one season together where I was a pro and he was a pro. And I think that was his last season. So after that, he was basically just helping me working on my sleds and, and doing, he was basically my program. Um, those years that I raced half a season and then would go race supercross. Like he was building sleds and getting stuff ready. And I would come back and, and race, you know, and everything was kind of set up and, and ready for us. Uh, so that was all my dad, uh, and a few mm -hmm. other people just working hard to, to kind of do that. So when we started racing again, full time, I guess it was just kind of that same program, just, just more focused. And I was there all the time and, um, you know, more, more races to do some more sleds, more parts, more people like just a, a little bit bigger scale of what we'd already been doing. So, um, which had been working awesome. So we knew, we already knew what to do. We just kind of did it all year long instead of half a season. So you kind of jump in basically right where you left off in those, those first couple years, full time. Again, there's some growing pains with the pro cross chassis in 2012, but everybody was feeling it, but basically, I mean, condensing all these years together, basically 
2013 until your retirement, there's a lot of wins. There's like just running away. There's a lot of championships. It's just kind of status quo. Like that's, those are some of the peak Tucker Hibbert years for sure. I'm just curious, just again, that whole block of time, any major races, any major wins that really stand out to you in particular, if you can, if you can pick them out. Oh man, it's such a blur. Like I, I <laughs> have such a hard time remembering all these races and all the things and people like Mandy or Rob or my dad or uh, other people from the team will say, Oh yeah, you know, that race, we did this and this happened. And I'm just like, uh, mm, I have no idea. Like I, I, <laughs> I it kind of bums me out, but, um, I, yeah, my memory's bad. And it was like that. Um, even when I was racing, like, like literally minutes or seconds after I would finish the race and I'd be talking to the guys on the team, like we're all, you know, whatever. And they'd be like, Holy cow. Like, how did you do that? Or that guy, you know, passed you and you got him back or whatever. And I'm like, just blank. Like, I have no clue what you're talking about. Like, it's so weird when, when I would race and it would usually come back to me later. I'd be like, Oh yeah, that's right. You know, that this happened, but it's like, it's just, just data coming in and going right back out. Like there's no, mm -hmm. there's no storing any of this information. It's just like, Mm -hmm. everything's a blur it's it's so weird and and a lot of that carries on like for me now it's like i don't remember details or i don't remember any of this stuff and and so many other people do and i'm like oh man i don't know if my brain's fried from way too many <laughs> two-stroke fumes or what but yeah i have a terrible memory but i do know there was a, a heck of a lot of cool races and and obviously when i look back at photos and watch videos and um it's always fun to to remember that stuff but you know the x games races were always the highlight that was like you know that was the main focus for me for so many years like obviously we were focused on winning winning the championship but we put so much effort into preparing for x games and then to have the the results that we did it was like the best like so so awesome and i i know there was one there's a cool picture and, and one race where I won, I think by like 26 seconds or something at X games and Rob's got the pit board and he's holding it out and it's like plus 26 or plus 27. And I'm looking at him mm -hmm. as I go, like go by and it's just like, Holy cow. I can't, it's hard to, it's hard to even think about that now. Like how we were able to, to put that together and make, make that happen. And we did it year after year. And it was just like, Oh, it was, it was a cool feeling. Uh, so much, so much work and so much time, not very much sleep at all. Uh, but we made it happen. So that was cool. It's funny. You kind of mentioned not, not remembering a ton of it. And it's, it's just funny. Cause there's a lot of moto guys. Like you talked to a lot of retired, retired moto guys, and some of them are very similar. They couldn't tell you any of these races, any of these finishes, but I bet like, particularly with you, Tucker, like on a, let's just pick a random year at X games. I bet there was a point in time where you could probably remember every single inch of that track when you came off of it. Like, yep. I remember this hole was here. This lip was here. Like I bet there was a point in time where your memory was really damn good on oh, what yeah. track layout so, was. So for sure the track, like that kind of stuff, it was more just like what happened, like a, mm -hmm. a pass or a, you know, obviously if it was like a almost crash, you, you normally remember those like sketchy moments, but it usually was like a battle and a pass or how something happened and it was like i don't know how or why but it just doesn't stick but yes the, the racetrack <laughs> it's funny now because if i see a picture or a video 
uh, of me racing from like 15, 20 years ago, I can like instantly, I'll be like, oh yeah, that I remember that exact jump and it had this gnarly little kicker. And if I missed yep. it by six inches to the right, I could stay lower. And it's like, it comes back, but it's super weird how so many things are just like a blur. And I'm like, I have no idea, but yeah. So it, it is really weird how that works. So kind of through all these years, I mean, there's, again, you don't have to remember them, but there's a lot of, a lot of really good battles between like you and Ross and you and Tim and Cody and stuff like that. But who would you say is your toughest competitor through some of those latter years of your, your career? Yeah, uh, definitely Ross Martin and Tim Tremblay were probably, uh, aside from Blair, those were, were the two guys that pushed me the most. Um, and I would say Ross more than almost more than Tim. Like he was, there was a, quite a few years of, of me and Ross kind of going back and forth and, and Ross personally and, and Polaris and their team, I know they put in so much effort um, those years to, you know, to challenge us and to push us. And, and it wasn't easy It pushed, and, and that's what you need, right? Like for me, if mm -hmm. I didn't have that, I wouldn't have been as good as I was either. So it was, it was a cool time and you always need somebody like that. That's just like as focused and determined as you are to win. And um, I was fortunate to be able to come out on top, you know, quite a few times and, and uh, a lot of good races and a lot of good battles. And yeah, I know that uh, I know that those guys worked their butts off and, and we had some good, some good racing. And again, it just pushed the sport, pushed me to, to be better and, and learn and get faster. Do you still talk to, to any of those guys? I know you still talk to Blair, but do you still talk to any of those, any of those guys you raced against over the years? Uh, I talked to Blair quite a bit now, like off and on for, for a few years, we would kind of connect. And then in the last couple of years, we've kind of started connecting more and more and, and spending some time together, which has been a lot of fun. Like it's fun to, it's fun to be able to be where we're at now, like beyond mm -hmm. uh, years beyond racing. And it's just like, there is no like weird, like, Oh, you're my competition. You know, it's like, you can just be friends mm -hmm. and enjoy each other's company. And that's the way it is for Blair and I now, which has been super cool. Uh, aside from Blair, I honestly, I don't really talk to anyone. Logan Christian and I have been good friends for a long, long time. I, I, I don't spend enough time with him. I, I need to do better at spending time with people like that. But, but for the most part, for me with racing, I, I didn't really have friends in racing. I didn't, I didn't have time for that. I didn't want to have friends because then you got to go race against these guys. Mm -hmm. um, so really, no, I don't, I don't really talk to anyone beyond Blair and Logan that I, that I've raced with in the past. So, which, yeah, which for me, racing was my job. Racing was what I was a hundred percent, hundred percent focused on. And, and there was, it wasn't that I was like just trying to be a jerk and not talk to people. I literally had no time for anything that would deter me from being the best racer I could be. And that was like, if I have any time to do anything, I'm going to sleep because I don't get enough of that. <laughs> so for me, that was just like, nope, just laser focus race, be as much of a robot as I could be to be fast at, at going around the track. Yeah. And that's definitely not, uh, that's not exclusive to you either. I'm sure a lot of your competitors will tell you the exact same thing. So that's not a, yeah, <laughs> so I, have, it, I have, I have nothing against any of the guys I was racing against. And I hope no one ever thinks that like I was just a jerk, just trying to not 
be friends with anybody, but yeah, for me, it was just all, all, uh, all business. Yeah. Tucker might've not talked to his, uh, his competitors, but he was sitting at his autograph booth until like 10 30 at night after every race. So just, just don't forget that stuff. Yeah. We had some dang good fans. That was, uh, that was like one of the coolest things in my whole career. Like there's so many people that were there so many years ago and then I'd see them at the races still with, you know, with kids and as, as the years went mm -hmm. on, like the same, there was so many of the same people that would be at the racetrack cheering us on and supporting me and, and the team. And yeah, a lot of, a lot of good relationships made like through racing. I've met so many people, um, through our travels and along the way, people that have helped us and, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. The, the places and the people that you get to meet through races, racing. Well, let's get into some of that, some of that branding a little bit, because, you know, I pointed this out, you know, Levi has a big brand name. He's got his merch and, you know, they have a vending trailer and all this kind of stuff. But aside from him, it's really just you. You're the only one who really kind of built their own brand in racing, basically, I mean, at all, honestly, like we, we see guys selling merch every now and again, but nobody really set up their own brand. And so I'm kind of curious, a thought process behind that and two, where did the actual name and branding of T train come from? Um, well, it's, first of all, most of it came from, from Rob. He was, uh, he was like the, the visual guy on the team for sure. He's a graphic designer, went to school for graphic design, super good about, knowing what's cool, what looks cool, how to make things uh, look better. Um, so myself, my wife, Mandy and Rob were kind of like the three, we were kind of like the, the, the group that was in charge of um, sponsors and, and how does the team look? How do, how do we brand ourselves? How do we, you know, make this thing, you know, successful, I guess we were, we had things figured out really well with um, with racing and the equipment and the results were coming. Everything was good, so we just wanted to like keep pushing and um, and figure out how to be more successful as a team because we were successful on the track and winning races and and that was good. So how do we get um, how do we get our team to the next level and how do we uh, start attracting new and bigger sponsors and how do we keep those sponsors happy and how do we you know how do we just turn this thing into like a a real high end professional team. And it wasn't like a decision one day, like, Oh, okay. Now we got to start doing this stuff. All those things were a slow, slow progression from years and years of racing and just slowly adding and doing more things and learning. And, and um, yeah, so I don't know. It, um, it was, it was always kind of like a, a little bit of a tug of war. Cause my dad was, you know, my dad's old school and he's just fully focused on, snowmobiles and parts mm -hmm. and pieces and engineering and you know then you go race and then we start trying to do all this promotional stuff and branding and okay we all got to wear these same shirts and oh we gotta you know we gotta go yeah. do this and it's always a <laughs> it, there's always a push and pull i think with any race team and any company really between engineering and marketing basically um, mm -hmm. and we just really we just tried to be smart and do do what we could do within our resources. And, um, I was, I'm really lucky that, that Mandy and Rob are so good at what they do and they were able to, to really take their reins. Cause I had to, you know, stay hundred percent focused on racing and, um, and really was involved in 
kind of everything. I had a big involvement with the with the uh, the sleds and the engineering and building of the parts and all that stuff. But I also was heavily involved with Rob and Mandy and the marketing stuff and branding. And yeah, so we all just kind of did a little bit of everything, and it all just kind of slowly progressed to where where we took it. It was super cool, super fun to to be able to learn and do new challenging things on the marketing side. Like uh, in the last you know handful of years that we raced, we re we really tried to progress and push our push our team to do cool things and um, to satisfy our sponsors. And our sponsors were also challenging us to do things. Um, and we had to learn a lot of stuff. I mean, there was for for me personally, like I didn't know it. I didn't pay attention to anything in school. I didn't know how to do any of this stuff. So we just learned it as we went. Luckily, Rob and Mandy uh, had college degrees that were, you know, pretty helpful in in uh, what we were doing. But we were all just kind of learning together and, and having a lot of fun doing it for sure. Well, I just look back and it's like a, it's a really underrated part of your program. Like, I think a lot of us just took it for granted over the years. Like, yeah, of course, he's going to have a merch tent. Of course, he's going to be there signing autographs after the race, all this kind of stuff. But even to this day, there's teams with three times the staff that you guys had in your program that don't have that level of presence at a race or that level of fan engagement. Like it's it's still impressive even years later. Yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of that. I mean, again, Rob and Mandy did such a good job of, of uh, brainstorming ideas and ways to do stuff and doing our merchandise booth at the, at the races um, was really just uh, us trying to figure out a way to connect with the fans more. Um, and it gave us a perfect, perfect way to, you know, to come back to the tent and sign autographs after the races and do stuff. But it was, mo it was just like, how, to, how do we connect with these fans? give them a way to go home with something from the races that they'll hopefully remember years down the road. Like, Oh yeah, I was at that race and you know, they got this shirt there. Or I got this hat just, yeah. Like um, it was a really cool opportunity and it really, it really kind of took off the last couple of years I was racing. Like we started having such huge autograph signings after the races. It was just like crazy how long the line was and how many people would be there. And it was so awesome because at that point, like I mentioned earlier, it's like a lot of these people that we've been seeing for so many years and now they're coming with friends and family and kids of their own. And, and it's like, yeah, it was a really cool experience for me to be able to connect with those people. Um, because for us, as I mentioned with, with the racers and stuff, like I just didn't have time to do anything. And like, I, it was always so hard to, to balance um, taking care of the fans and signing autographs and giving them uh, time to, you know, to be a, feel like they're a part of our team. And, and, uh, so that was a cool way to give back to those guys and, and be able to spend time. Cause it's after the race at the end of the night, everything's done. There's no more stress. Like we can just relax and, and spend some time visiting about, um, about the race and spending time with those people. It was really cool. Shameless plug on this at the, at the time of recording, at least, there's still merch on Tucker's website, and if you buy it, he will sign it. If that just shows you guys the level of, of dedication there. It, it is uh, few and far in between, but people do buy stuff every once in a while, and Mandy's got a little a little uh, spot in the corner that she packages it up, and she has, to, she has to wrangle me from doing some random project that I'm doing to come in and sign 
sign a shirt or a hat every once in a while. So it's, yeah, it's, it's always kind of, kind of fun to see. And, um, and it's cool too, because people a lot of times will order some stuff and they'll, they'll, um, put a little comment or note on the, on the order, like with a memory of a race, like, Hey, I, I met you at this race, you know, back in whatever year. And I remember you, you know, you did this and then, yeah, there's some memory and it's always super cool to, to hear people's, uh, people's version of a race, you know, or, or an event, Mm -hmm. because like, obviously I have my perspective, but to see other people's perspective of what they saw and what they remember is, uh, it's always, it's always cool. And, and that was again, uh, back to, uh, signing autographs after the races, it was cool to, to hear from the fans, uh, perspective, like to hear a person say like, oh yeah, I watched your race. 25 years ago or 15 years ago. And then now we're back Mm -hmm. here and, and um, yeah. And then just to, just to have that uh, to look back at and when people send notes now, it's always cool to see. So stepping away from the sport uh, in 2018, you know, just, just from the, from the fan side, it wasn't like a shock in the sense that, you know, he's washed up, he can't hang anymore or anything like that. It was more like when you actually look at the whole picture, he's been racing at a high level for almost 20 years. But when you finally decide to step away from racing snowcross, was that kind of like planned out like a year in advance in your mind? Or was it kind of like in the in mid season when you kind of made that call? Um, no, it was not planned out. It wasn't even mid season. I didn't even decide until after, well, quite a while after that season. So no, I had, oh, okay. I didn't really have any, any game plan and we never like, never thought about stuff like that. Never talked about it. Like it was just, we're, we're going to the races and we're going to races to win. And that's what we did. And uh, season would end and then we would, you know, make a plan for the next year. So it was never like in my mind, uh, like, Oh, I'm going to race for three more years or I'm going to race whatever, you know, like I never had a plan. It's always just race and win and, and repeat. That was my, that was my game plan. And the only thing that I'll say is that I didn't ever want to keep racing beyond when I felt like I was the best that I could be. Um, which I'm Mm -hmm. very glad that, that I can say I did that. I do feel like the last season that I raced, I was as good as I've ever been. And I feel like I probably had more years that I could have kept going at that level. Um, so it wasn't like, uh, there, yeah, there was really nothing that was like, Oh yeah, you should stop racing. It just, I was, uh, it was the right time. It was the right time for me. It was the right time for, for other people. It was just like, it was a natural situation that like, you know, that's enough and I'm happy. I'm curious that just that take us back, you get home basically after that last weekend and and maybe you didn't at that point in time, then understand that that was basically your last race, but maybe after you make the the decision that you're going to hang it up, like, was there kind of some, some weight off your shoulders or did you have any, any kind of sense of relief or was it just kind of like a, well, what do I do now? (laughs) You finally decided. Um, I honestly don't remember. So for sure, after that weekend or whatever, I didn't like, I didn't really know or have any, any idea that I wasn't going to race the next year at that point. Um, so that after the race was just like every, every, after the rate, after the season's done, you just 
get back to the shop and start cleaning up the sleds and cleaning up the stuff and dealing with everything and, you know, just business as usual. So, um, yeah, so I, and I honestly don't, when I did, you know, know or decide or whatever that I wasn't going to, to race the next year, I, I honestly don't really remember how that felt or what that was like or what. Yeah. I, I don't really remember. I mean, it's, uh, I'm not the type of person that, gets hung up on stuff and like really worry like I'm just on the move like what's the next thing what's mm-hmm. the next thing so yeah for me it was just just whatever on to the next thing <laughs> awesome awesome well I want to move into the the pick your poison segment which is something I I started last week and I found it pretty entertaining myself so uh we're gonna we're gonna try it on you Tucker so I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you two instances that both kind of suck and you're gonna have to pick one of them and justify it if you you think you're up for it okay so stud a track without an impact or wrap a sled without a heat gun uh when you say without an impact what what is what's my tool uh just a ratchet and a socket pretty much yep (laughs) uh i'm gonna go with the wrap a sled without a heat gun that sounds like a lot more fun. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. I mean, there's there's some sleds that are a lot easier than others. That's what I would. Well, say, you didn't say sure. how good it has to look at the end. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just I just have to wrap it. There can be bubbles everywhere. I just have to wrap it. It's fair. It's fair. So, second one, get dressed in a trailer that has no heat, or race a spring race like like Geneva end of the year in a balaclava. So it's like 45, 50 degrees out. Uh, I'll get dressed in a cold trailer. I've done that many, many times. So it's not, I'm, I'm used to that. Fair, fair. Super muddy pits or like a hardened track that hasn't been broken up by the groomer yet and you have to ride it. Uh, well, I've, so I've done both many, many times. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to go with muddy pits just because, uh, yeah, it's pretty sketchy riding on a track that's icy and hard and not broken up, but yeah, we raced lots of races with muddy pits and we, we always figured out a way to make it, make it work out. Okay. So I would rather have that. Wear a tech vest that's way too big. So it's shaking around or a neck brace. That's way too small. So you got limited head movement. <laughs> Um, oh, wow. I don't know. <laughs> I probably the tech like vest I said, they, too they both big. suck. <laughs> yeah. Probably the sloppy <laughs> tech vest, I guess. <laughs> I need to be able to turn my head, right? Uh, I mean, you'd, you'd think, you'd think, but you know, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be somebody that's going to message me like, I don't know, man. I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather do the neck brace. Yeah. No, they both don't know. sound very comfortable, but yeah, I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure I raced with a big sloppy tech vest a few times when I was a little kid, so must work out. Last one for you. A track that's all right-handers or a track that's all rhythm? All rhythm meaning like just straight, like a straight rhythm? No, no, that'd be way too fun. Okay. Straight rhythm. No, no, no. It's still like an oval. Like, like picture like Deadwood, but there's no wall jump. There's no tabletop. It's just rhythm all the way around it. Ooh. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun, so I'll take that one. 
<laughs> but I, I don't mind going right hand turns too because that's yeah that's something different i always did i always did good on right hand turns so that's all right really okay yep yeah like everyone ever like yeah everyone always gets stressed out about it like for me it was just yeah it was good i we would ride the, that direction quite a bit practicing so i was always ready for it and and I always viewed it as an opportunity to like, if other people are going to struggle, how do we figure out how to be even better at it than, than they might be. So yeah, it always seemed to work out pretty good. I always, uh, back when I was racing, I always just felt so embarrassed when there was a right-hander. Cause like all you, like it, we're, we're snowmobile racers. Like we, it, it's just turning right yet. It becomes this like incredibly difficult thing that we can never seem to figure out. Like it just, it always irked me. Yeah, it's it is awkward, and um, yeah, like my whole body is messed up from turning left my whole life. Unfortunately, it's not messed up, but I mean, it's like, yeah, you look at a snowcross racer without a shirt on, and I guarantee one side of their body is twice as strong as the other side. It's just, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird, but yeah, I always tried to go turn right, practicing as much as I could, just to keep the body balanced a little bit and be, be ready for it. But yeah, it's, yeah, my feet and my, actually my feet are messed up from turning left. If that's really that. Yeah. But whatever, I'll survive. <laughs> you mentioned that you really like rhythm. Like it's, it's controversial topic these days. Cause dudes just hate pounding rhythm the entire time, but you, you liked rhythm. Well, what do you mean by rhythm? Like, like you can time it or you just got to smash through it. Yeah, I should clarify. So if you, you know, if you can double it, that's, that's fine. But the dudes that just have to basically pound into the face the entire time, like a lot of dudes are, are out on yeah, that. Yeah, I don't really like that so much, but I, yeah. So I guess if that's the case, I'll turn right. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, just a couple more questions for you here, Tucker, I want to dive into. So, you know, you kind of mentioned earlier just these relationships and these partnerships that you've had. And we touched on a little bit when talking about the branding of, of T-Train, but you had a lot of the same sponsors for your entire year, for your entire career. You know, obviously Cat, but then you ran Castle for a really long time, Articat Lubricants, like a lot of the same sponsors the entire time. What did both the support from those guys, but also those relationships just mean to you, like on a personal level, but then also to your program? Well, they were, they were obviously, you know, really crucial for us as a team to be able to function, to have those sponsors. But at the beginning, um, you know, I had most of the same sponsors, like my whole career in front at the beginning, it was just like, Hey, I gotta get, I gotta get sponsors. Cause that was cool. And that's what you did. And, um, one of my first sponsors ever was stud boy. And I, rem mm -hmm. and I remember I made up some janky homemade resumes and, uh, sent them out and sent them to everybody, like tons and tons of people. I just send resumes all over. And I think even some of them said something like, Oh, you may know my dad, his name's Kirk Hibbert or something, you know, like I'm like, <laughs> you know, 12 years old writing resumes. So you can imagine how they, they looked, um, or proposals, mm -hmm. I guess. But uh, anyway, so the stud boy, the stud boy sponsorship deal. Um, I remember getting back, like you'd get letters back, like, oh yeah, you're gonna, you know, we can give you this deal, like it's 50% off, you know, and a free t-shirt or something. 
So I'd, you'd get all these things back from sponsors that you sent resumes to. And I got like two or three back from traction companies. And one of them was stud boy. And I had another, I don't remember what other brand it was, but there was another traction one that had like the same, they both had the same offer, the same program. And I was like, Oh man, how am I going to choose? Like, I don't know which one, which one do I want to go with? And the stud boy logo was like at the top of the little thing, you know, with the muscly stud <laughs> yeah. guy. And I'm like, yeah, that guy looks cool. I gotta, I gotta be a stud boy. <laughs> so that's, so that's how I got sponsored by stud boy. I just had to pick because they had the coolest logo. And then, um, fast forward so many years later, it's, you know, the, the patent family is, is, uh, great friends of ours and many, many good years and, and lots of memories made. And, you know, that's kind of how sponsorship goes. Like for me, we, we were fortunate to have a lot of really great companies that we worked with and, at the core of those relationships were some sort of friendship connection that we've made and, and, uh, and had a lot of fun doing it. And at the same time, obviously it was a business, a business deal where we had to make sure the sponsors were happy and we had to, uh, get the results and, and every, it was a, you know, we, we did everything we possibly could to make sure that the, the, the sponsorship was a partnership and that we were, we were both happy at the end of the day and everyone was um, couldn't wait for the next season to do it again. So that was, you know, that was kind of our focus on sponsors. And as the years went on, we had to obviously be more professional and, and start working with these higher level sponsors and uh, figuring out how to not only get those sponsors, but keep them happy and keep them for year after year and figure out new ways to, to make that happen. And, yeah, we were successful at it. And again, that a lot of that goes back to, to Rob and Mandy and how hard they worked mm -hmm. uh, on our proposals, on our marketing uh, plans after we landed these sponsors to, to follow through and, and make them happy and make it a successful partnership. So yeah, it was uh, a lot of fun doing that stuff, a little bit stressful at times, but um, for us, it was, it was a lot of fun. So looking at your career as a whole, beyond just obviously race wins and championships and, and all the success on the track. What's kind of the legacy that you want for yourself? Like, what do you want people to think of when they think of Tucker Hibbert? Um, yeah, that's kind of a, I don't know. I, I haven't really thought about all that, all that much, but I guess um, obviously I hope they think that I was a fair and respectable racer on the track and, and um, that I never gave up. I mean, that's the main thing with racing. That was always my main thing is like, just don't ever give up and, and do everything possible right to the finish line and in preparing for races. And um, yeah, so I hope, hope that people look at what I've done and think it was a good thing and respectable and, and enjoyed watching and, and that I never let anybody down. So I know we've touched on it a little bit that your your memory's a little off on some of this stuff, but if if you can, favorite race sled of all time, whether it was yours or even your dad's. Uh, my favorite race sled was the last season that I raced, as far as you know how it performed and and how good it felt, and um, yeah, it's hard it's hard not to pick usually like the the most current sled because they just got so much better every year. Obviously, there was a couple. There's always a couple years in there, a couple sleds that that don't uh, perform as well as you hope they would. But for the most part, it's like every year they just get better. So for me, the last 
the last sled I rode, which I think was 2018, that was the best performing handling, um, you know, just the sled I felt most comfortable on. So I'd have to pick that one. You know, there's going to be people like in the comments and messaging me like that, that first year winter X game sled that was like hand built with a custom tank and all that stuff. There's going to be a bunch of people that are going to say that sled, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, that sled was cool. That was definitely like the beginning of, of building super cool mod race sleds. Um, you know, not, I mean, there was obviously stuff going on before that. And at the same time, that was pretty cool, but that, that was a, a really, uh, thought through well-engineered sled, uh, that was really cool. But if you line that thing up today, it would be, <laughs> it'd be pretty, <laughs> pretty comical to try to get around the track on it, at least at the speeds that we do now, or that not we, but, uh, that riders do now. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many cool sleds. I, I mean, if you just want to talk about what's like cool, I mean, there's all kinds of different sleds throughout the years of my racing and, and, and other people's racings that were super cool. But the one that I guess I would pick and like the best would be the, the last one I raced. So I know currently you have, you have a couple of Jags at your house. I'm curious, kind of dove a little bit into the, into the vintage scene. You got like a, got a favorite old, old sled of all time. Um, yeah, for sure. The, like a Jag long track, that's my thing right now. Uh, and I, mm -hmm. I have a hard time calling them vintage cause they're not that old. It's like, <laughs> Uh, all my all my jags are like 90 91 90 through 94 like in that range so jag and cheetah long tracks is what i'm into two up seats reverse high low chain case yeah just sit down and putz around at about 35 miles an hour lots of fun only uh only good for about 45 minutes until your back just completely blows up. <laughs> well, I'm not like jumping these things really. So it's more just, uh, yeah, just ripping around and exploring and having fun. But yeah, for some reason I got, got sucked into these Jag long tracks. And so that's, uh, I don't know. It's fun. It's cool to, uh, to find these sleds and fix them up. And, um, yeah, it's fun to just to, to go ride, like just to go exploring and riding with friends and stuff. So that's, that's kind of what we're into right now, I guess. So last one for you then, it kind of ties into that. What are you up to these days? Like what's, what's the, what's the average day look like for, for Tucker Hibbert? <laughs> uh, not, not nearly as exciting as most people would think probably. Um, <laughs> we, we, Mandy and I have a dog, so we spend a lot of time hanging with the dog. Um, yeah, a lot the winters are all about snowmobiling, like just riding sleds uh, around home and going down the sledding hill and, uh, exploring in the winter and enjoying our time in the winter. I used to not be a big fan of winter because um, when we were racing, uh, the only place I really wanted snow was on the track because all the other snow was just like made life hard for us to tra oh, yeah. travel and, you know, dealing with shoveling and all that stuff. So I was just like, ah, I don't really like winter. It's, but now I love it. Like a super, super uh, enjoyful for us to spend winters just enjoying snow and riding and just kind of a slower pace of life. So yeah, it's cool. I, uh, I've heard through the grapevine that these days Mandy rips on a bicycle and that the, it, it's kind of switched now you're, you're following her around racing. Yeah. We've done not a ton of mountain bike racing. Like I used to race a, a lot more when I was racing snowcross and motocross, like we raced a lot of mountain bikes, but, 
uh, I've slowed down a lot as far as uh, how much I ride. And uh, Mandy has definitely ramped up her, her training and, and riding program. So she's gotten pretty serious about it the last couple of years. And she had a pretty, pretty good crash uh, midsummer end of summer this year that kind of set her back, but she's been, uh, yeah, she's been riding a lot. So I, I kind of join in about every third or fourth ride with her training rides. And then I just kind of go to the races and hope for the best when we go. So yeah, I'm, I thought I would get way into cycling when I stopped racing, uh, you know, professionally and I would just like be cyclist guy, but that hasn't really happened. I think the, the Jag long tracks have gotten in the way of that. <laughs> so do you got like a summer hobby for yourself then? Are you riding moto or are you just kind of hanging out? Um, no, I, I did ride moto two summers ago quite a bit this, this year. I didn't, I don't know why I worked on my track a bunch, um, kind of re redid my track, but then never rode it for some reason. So yeah, just, uh, I don't know, all kinds of random projects. We, we live on an old dairy farm that we bought quite a few years ago and just like tons of work to fix up the land and the buildings and. So I didn't have a lot of time to do that stuff when I was racing. So now it's like just nonstop projects, just all sorts of random projects that I get myself into. So lots of dirt work and landscaping and um, yeah, I don't know. I do a little bit of everything, but a whole lot of nothing. It seems like. <laughs> yeah. That's probably my, my favorite part about snowmobile athletes in general is just like, you know, despite all the success on the track and all the accolades and all the fans and all this stuff at the end of the day, when they get home they're they're just regular guys. There's, there's nothing special. Yeah, for sure. I mean, life now for me is like completely different than what it was, you know, before, like when I was racing, it was just a hundred percent focused on racing. And, and that was, uh, that's what we had to do. But now, you know, I'm just kind of, yeah, just living life, nothing too crazy, just uh, enjoying time with friends and family. And we got some great neighbors and great people we like to spend time with. And um, yeah, life's life's totally different now, slower uh, change of pace, but I'm happy and, and uh, it's going good. So yeah, we're good. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we can wrap it up for, for you there, Tucker. Again, I, I really appreciate the time and, and all the cool stories. I know I can speak for the entire sport of snowcross that we, we missed you. We'd love to see you back, even just hanging out, but can certainly appreciate and, and be happy that you're, you're enjoying your life outside of racing. Yeah, I appreciate that. And it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of weird, like doing this, this podcast and like the things we've talked about and there's so much more and so many more people that I could talk about and, uh, stories and, you know, there's so much that was involved in my career and, and my time racing. And it's, uh, yeah, it feels weird. Like, um, it's even hard to think about some of the things I've answered. I'm like, Oh, I could say, you know, this about this person and oh, this, this happened. And it's like endless. It's, yeah, there was like 20 plus years of, of racing that, that happened there. And we try to cram it into, to a short conversation. It's, uh, I feel bad. I, I hope I, uh, didn't say anything too goofy and, and my timeline wasn't too messed up and I didn't leave anything, uh, critical out, but yeah, it's been fun to visit about it. It's definitely weird for me because I've just been so not involved in snowmobile racing now. So to, even to talk about this stuff is, a yeah, it's a little a little different for me now but um it's kind of fun so yeah i know he's gonna listen so i just think you gave robbie dolan way too much credit That's <laughs> rob you know, yeah but, well yeah. yeah it's hard like i hate i hate 
even uh, naming people because there's so many people that were involved. But yeah, I mean, like the, yeah, like we've talked, the main, the main crew, you know, the core team was me and Mandy and Rob and, and my dad. And there were so many more people involved at, at different times and all the way through that it's, we could have a whole podcast just talking about every person that contributed to, uh, to our team and to our success and all the, all the characters that we've met along the way. For sure. For sure. Well, thanks again, Tucker. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Tucker Hibbert on the Carbide Podcast. Well, there you have it, folks. It was great to chat with Tucker and hear some of the not-so-flashy stories from throughout his life. My favorite part about doing this podcast is showcasing the more human elements to some of these elite riders. Behind every true champion is the humility to understand that nobody gets to the top on their own. Hearing Tucker emphasize all the people he's worked with over the years, both personally and professionally, really tells you the kind of guy he is behind all the glitz and glamour of his racing career. Thanks again to Tucker for the time and his lovely wife Mandy for all the help in setting up this interview. I hope I was able to do it justice. To my loyal listeners, thanks again for your support. These pods are a lot of work, but the feedback I get every week makes it all worth it. Be sure to subscribe, check out our social channels and the new merch site to grab yourself some carbide gear, and as always, take care.